This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. For our season finale of Technically Human, I'm sitting down with Cal Poly graduate Haley Pavoni, the founder and CEO at Passion Footwear, to talk about the ethics of design and gender equity in entrepreneurship, fashion, and business. Haley Pavoni is an entrepreneur whose ambition and passion for innovation led her to create the largest disruptive advancement that women's footwear has ever seen, the world's first fully convertible heel. She has invented, developed, and brought to production what was once thought to be an impossible shoe, and she's done it all by 25 with no background in footwear. She's appeared in Forbes, Business Wire, and recently on the critically acclaimed and multi-Emmy award-winning entrepreneurial-themed ABC reality show, Shark Tank. A Cal Poly graduate and an alumnus of the University's Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, Pavoni founded the company as a junior at Cal Poly and graduated from Cal Poly in 2018 with a degree in business entrepreneurship. In the four years since, she has developed her innovative product technology, built out an all-star team, secured patent-pending status in 30 countries, and developed and launched a comprehensive e-commerce website, raising over $3 million in seed funding. She's passionate about empathic and humane design and building collectively and collaboratively with insight, inclusion, and compassion. Hi, Haley. Hi, so great to be here. (laughs) It's so great to have you. This is actually really a thrill for me because I am so excited to see you as one of the next generation of innovators in action creating the next generation of innovation. As a Cal Poly professor, it really excites me to see students taking up ideas that they've grown at Cal Poly into the world. I love your story, so let's start at the beginning. Walk us through the initial steps of developing the idea that would ultimately become passion shoes. Oh my goodness. This is a tale as old as time. I feel like everyone's heard me run through this story. But for me, the inspiration really came from just dealing with a problem on a daily basis. I know that's you know, the typical run of the mill answer from every entrepreneur, but high heel pain was something I dealt with all the time. I was a big high heel wearer. I love fashion. It was definitely part of my personal style, but as everyone knows, high heels hurt and they're super inconvenient. So I was definitely the girl that was regularly ending up barefoot or, you know, stuffing sneakers in my backpack. Or if I was feeling particularly bold on a given day, I would just suffer through and tough it out, but then be massaging my feet for three hours at the end of the night. And it all, it had been a consistent frustration for me for years, but it all really came to a head actually in my sophomore year of college at Cal Poly. I was out at a sorority spring formal and had worn six inch high heels, of course, as one does at a sorority spring formal. And I really wanted to be busting a move on the dance floor. And as I'm sure you can relate, Deb, you can't really bust a move in six-inch stilettos. So I ditched my heels and was dancing barefoot, as I'd always done at this kind of event. But on that particular night, tragedy, and I like to say inspiration, struck when someone else accidentally stepped on my foot with the ballpoint of her stiletto and actually impaled me through the toe. So it was 
like I said, a very inspiring moment to say the least. Um, but as I was sitting there on the side of the dance floor, unimpaling myself, I looked around and realized, you know, 80 to 90% of the other women at this thing were also barefoot, basically everyone other than the gal that had just impaled me. And it really just hit me in that moment how ridiculous it is. You know, everyone knows high heels hurt and they're inconvenient. Women are still very much expected to wear them and want to wear them to professional and formal events, but there truly was no marketable solution. And so for me, studying entrepreneurship at the time, I was an entrepreneurship major at Cal Poly. You know, I'd been getting beat into my head quarter after quarter, find a problem that needs to be fixed, find your market opportunity. And I just felt incredibly inspired that this was it. Like for two weeks after that, I was up till three in the morning trying to research high heels and understand why something like this didn't exist. And I couldn't really find a good reason why it hadn't been done. So I figured, hey, you know, I'm really passionate about this. I can tell I'm going to regret if I don't at least give it a shot. And so I just dove in headfirst to trying to make it myself. What were the kind of reasons that you heard that it had not been done before? What, what kind of feedback did you get? What kind of naysayers did you find? There's kind of two main reasons I've discerned that this hadn't been created before. One of them is kind of the standard issue that comes up in an old industry, which is this just isn't how shoes are made. Like everyone I talked to in the footwear space said it doesn't exist because that's not how high heels are made. You know, they're compressed wood fiber, they're hammered together, there's no flexibility, you can't remove the soles support because it's nailed in. It's just not possible. But being an industry outsider, I'm kind of sitting there asking why, you know, I think when someone's in something day to day, it's very easy to just accept what is commonplace as fact, you know, things like the heel has to be hammered in. And I'm sitting there going, why? Why does the heel have to be hammered in? Oh, it's super, you know, that's the most stable way to do it. Are you sure? Have you tried another way? And so as I kept kind of digging down with people that had made shoes before trying to understand, I couldn't really come up with a mechanical reason why it couldn't happen. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, everyone in the industry was used to how it was done. And that was just what was accepted. And so no one was thinking outside of the box that way. And then I think the other main reason, the more I dug into the industry, is it's alarming how many women's footwear designers and women's, just women's fashion companies in general are led by men. And not that men aren't great designers, they're fantastic, but I think there's always going to be a gap in the market when the people creating a product aren't actually using it on a daily basis. And so I think, you know, a lot of the executives in the industry appreciated that heels were painful in an abstract sense. But since it wasn't a problem, they were living day in and day out. They weren't super motivated to fix it. It's like, hey, women are still spending, you know, 200 bucks on my shoes. Why would I invest in making them better if I'm running a profitable business? I think it just took someone who dealt with it on a regular basis, kind of that whole buy women for women thing of bringing that perspective in. And then also, I think one of my biggest assets, as weird as it was, was having no background in footwear. I think it allowed me to think about it differently and kind of throw the standard heel out the window. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the gender dimension of entrepreneurship more broadly. What's your experience of the way that gender operates in that space? Oh, this is <laughs> this is always a fun question. I, I'm very passionate about this topic and I speak on it a lot. Of course, there's a huge discrepancy from a gender perspective in entrepreneurship and exceptionally so in venture capital and just angel investing in general, kind of just the funding entrepreneurship space is very male dominated. 
I think it was 2.8% of venture funding went to female founders in 2019. And then in 2020, it dropped down to 2.3%. So we actually had a drop. We're actually going backwards now, which is very troubling. So I have to say, I've, I've definitely lived it. I do think fundraising as a woman in this space, particularly pushing such a female focused product, it's difficult solely because of kind of the space that I'm in and the bias that's present in that space. You know, when I walk into the majority of venture or angel pitches, I'm in a boardroom with 10 men and sometimes one woman, but mostly 10 men. And again, it's not that they don't get the product, but they don't experience it on a daily basis. They need a lot more explanation. The amount of time I've spent in pitches explaining why women wear heels and you know why th that they do hurt and that this is a problem people want solved. When you're in that kind of environment and you're given 20 minutes for Q&A, it's a huge disadvantage to have to spend the first 10 minutes just explaining that your problem is legitimate versus the handful of times I have been able to pitch to women. I don't, I can use all that time more productively getting into the nitty gritty of the business. Cause I, you know, I can just say, Hey, high heels hurt. And they're like, yep, been there, had the flats in my backpack. Let's skip over this part. Like I, you know, they're locked in, they understand. So I definitely think the discrepancy, it's there, it's real, and it does have an impact. Um, it just means, you know, I have to go that extra mile when I'm trying to fundraise for this business just to get people on the same page that this problem exists. You know, it's so interesting. There's a entrepreneur and a venture capitalist that I sometimes speak to. His name is uh, Scott Hartley. He runs a venture capital fund called The Fund. And what they've done is they have put together a mandated set of requirements for each investment team where there has to be 50-50 gender on each team. They don't have any kind of ethical mandate toward gender equity in their investments. They just have a gender equity requirement on their team. And out of that, they've seen something like 40% more female entrepreneurs as people that they've ended up investing in simply by changing the structure of the investment team. And I find that so fascinating because I think it really does point to the fact that we always find the kinds of problems that we personally experience, the kinds of problems that are valuable or worth solving. I wanted to ask you the same question in the context of equity in the design world. Do you see gender operating in that space as well? You touched on a little bit the fact most shoe designers are men. What about gender equity in that space? You know, I have to say this is a space I'm not as well versed to speak on solely because we've been, you know, kind of operating in our own little unit. We haven't had a lot of opportunity yet to cross collaborate with other designers at this point. But again, just when I was digging into the market, it was really overwhelming to see how many of the fashion brands and particularly footwear brands that are focused on targeting women are run by men. You know, I actually think it's interesting. One of the easiest ways to grasp this is thinking about the big brand name footwear designers that come to mind, right? There's Steve Madden, Sam Edelman, Manolo, Louis Vuitton, like they're all men. <laughs> Everyone is kind of idolizing men as the designers of women's products. And I think a big part of that really started, you know, hundreds of years ago. I, when people ask about this invention and, and what it means and the weight that it carries, High heels haven't changed at all in 200 years, as I touched on earlier. Compressed wood fiber, things are hammered in. That's how it was done 200 years ago. Now it's just done on a production line at scale. But the fundamentals really haven't changed. And when you think back on 200 years ago, on who was allowed to invent and who was allowed to create, it was all male designers. Women weren't allowed to work in that capacity. 
And it's so funny when you when you start looking at things with that lens, how many components of women's products are just kind of left over from that era. No one's really updated them. The other big one I always use is dresses with zippers in the back started around that time. And it all originates from the theory that women are never alone when they're getting dressed. There's always a man or, you know, a caregiver of some type around to help them get dressed. And that's so crazy. And that's another one where you'd think modern design would have kind of caught that and said, that's nuts. Let's put them more frequently on the side so that women can dress themselves in this day and age. But I think it's just one of those things, again, where it was set up that way. People are used to it being that way. They're established in that way of design. And then so many of the designers are still male and not experiencing those problems day in and day out. They're just not familiar, or at least familiar enough, with how much the modern woman's lifestyle has evolved in the last 200 years. And so it doesn't hit them in the face how outdated those design elements are in the same way that you know women live it. What do you think it'll take for it to change? Female founders. That's what it takes. I think it's, you know, it's women that experience those problems on a daily basis going, hold on, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Why should we still be doing this? And then starting their own businesses to fix it. That's that's really what it takes is I think just the the by women for women bring our voices into the industries that impact us. I speak with so many Cal Poly students who seem like they're on the cusp of really being ready to show off their idea and of course take on the risk of boldly saying I have an idea and I think that other people should invest in my idea. At what point did you consider yourself an entrepreneur? You know, that's so funny. It's an interesting question. Um, when I think back, there's kind of a couple times that really stand out where it hit me it kind of simultaneously, the realization. I think me becoming an entrepreneur in my mind actually happened secondarily to accepting that this actually could be a company. <laughs> I think was that was kind of the first realization I had. And so the first big breakthrough moment I had was actually competing in the Cal Poly elevator pitch competition. I had been thinking about this idea for north of six months and hadn't shared it with anybody. I was just kind of quietly looking at the market, making a business plan. And, you know, I presented that business plan to the hatchery on campus. And that was kind of the first time someone said, wow, this actually could be a business. You should explore this. And that was cool. But for me, winning the elevator pitch competition, you know, just expressing the idea to a room of 150 people and having that validation that they all thought it was a good idea. That was kind of when the light bulb went off. And I thought, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Other people think this is cool, too. And then I think the other big realization that really kind of hit me between the eyes was the first time I raised money. Like when someone who, you know, wasn't related to me <laughs> saw this as a viable enough opportunity to cut a $25,000 check, that was really kind of that aha moment of, okay, this is, this is a real business. I'm a real entrepreneur. People are actually investing in this. So it's got to be real, right? <laughs> like that's, that's kind of the moment, I guess, that it really struck me. I wanted to talk a little bit about risk. I, I imagine that deciding to start your own company or even deciding to create that first design and certainly deciding to speak that idea out in public took a fair amount of risk. And then a series of risks, starting your own thing, deciding to pursue the design after perhaps others told you that it was impossible, as you outlined earlier, leaving the security of a known path. How do you think about risk? And, and what do you think allowed you to take those risks? For me, oh, those are interesting questions. As far as how I think about risk, 
And when I think about what pushed me to move forward with it in spite of the risk, it's actually funny because I consider myself to be a very risk averse person, something people don't know about me. I'm actually very anxious. I'm an overthinker. I'm definitely like a a troubleshooter problem solver. I think that's part of what makes me a great entrepreneur because I'm always trying to think like 15 steps ahead to de-risk the situation just because I hate the risk so much. But I think what, what really pushed me over the edge on diving in on that initial risk was for me, this is gonna sound interesting, but actually counteracting the risk of regret was a bigger concern to me. Like I know the the big thought process I had was, okay, this is really risky, you know, it might not work out, but if I don't do it, <laughs> I'm running the risk that when I'm 80 years old, looking back on my life, I'm gonna think, wow, that really was a great idea, I wish I'd done it. To me, having regret was a scarier risk than all the risks associated with starting the business. Like that to me is my biggest fear of looking back on my life and not being happy with what I accomplished and what I tried. So I guess you could say I approached the risk from the perspective of de-risking a different risk to give you an idea of how risk averse I am, that it was all tied up in the same thing. But anyway, that's kind of how I dove into it. And then as far as being empowered to do that, I do think I, I was incredibly lucky in the sense that I grew up very empowered. You know, I get asked a lot why there aren't more women in entrepreneurship. And I think a big part of it is it starts with the messaging young girls receive. And I think a lot of young girls aren't encouraged to take risks and encouraged to be CEOs. And, you know, I think young girls get a lot of complex messaging, as I think has been talked about now in the media. And I count myself very lucky that my father in particular was very much a true feminist in that sense and incredibly empowering. I mean, from, I must've been like as young as three years old. And he was telling me, if you want to lead a company, you can a hundred percent. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you can. And so I knew going into this venture that I had the support of my family. And also I'd been getting that messaging my entire childhood that you are only limited by what you want for yourself. And I feel very fortunate in retrospect to have been lucky enough to receive that messaging because I think a lot of young girls don't get that. And I think that's the bigger societal barrier to solving, you know, kind of the gender inequality in venture is how we raise our young girls to be empowered enough to chase after that. I think it's worth pausing for a second and just maybe defining that word entrepreneur and talking about the qualities, because I think that many people hear that word, especially because it is a gendered word and think, well, I could never be that, or that's something that particularly, you know, white men do or white men in Silicon Valley or something like that. Let's give a very basic definition from your perspective of that term entrepreneur, and then the qualities that somebody might have have to be a successful entrepreneur. And by the way, listeners, if you see yourself in these words and this definition, maybe you can start thinking about yourself as an entrepreneur. I think entrepreneur has taken on a really interesting meaning. I think there's a lot of different types of entrepreneurs. In my opinion, the root definition of entrepreneur is just someone that has started their own business and is making money off of it. I would say that's what makes it cross into an actual entrepreneurial business. But that can mean anything. It doesn't mean you're going out and raising millions of dollars for a startup, you know, as it is in my sense. It could be just starting a side hustle, like an Etsy account or, you know, anything. I think there's a full scope of what entrepreneurialism looks like. It's just when you have an idea and you turn it into a business for yourself. And that can have, you know, a million definitions. 
even starting a lemonade stand would be entrepreneurial by my definition, I guess. So it's that's it's a much more all-encompassing term than I think it's given credit for. And I think it's good for people to appreciate that. As far as the qualities of entrepreneurship, you know, it loosely depends on the business you're in. I think the most important quality of an entrepreneur when it comes to succeeding in whatever the venture is, is resilience. You know, you talk about risk. And I think the one universal factor whenever you're creating something yourself is, of course, there's risk, there's going to be challenges, you don't have that safety net of a bigger organization around you protecting you from those kinds of things. So having the resilience to navigate problems, um, and keep persevering when things are a little rockier is definitely important. I think creativity is essential um, and also problem solving. Again, when you think about entrepreneurship, it's usually they have some kind of gap in the market that they're seeing, whatever that is. It could be inventing a new product like a heel that turns to a flat or you know, with the Etsy example, there's a brand that's missing in the market. There's a type of product or design that they want to see out there that isn't. And having both the creativity and problem solving ability to package that up into a product or business or service that's essential as well. Gosh, I could go on. There's so many good traits. But I think if, if you're a creative problem solver and you have that that resilience factor to you and a degree of bravery, I would say, you have to be okay with being scared sometimes, which probably goes hand in hand with resilience. But I think that's the easiest way to sum up, I think, the core of what goes into it. Can you give us a rocky moment or a scary moment for you that you experienced? There's so many. To be super timely, I think one of the moments I've been the most scared in this entire business history is March of 2020 when the pandemic started. You know, I often get asked in VC pitches, how do you de-risk this business? And my go-to answer was people wear high heels to all kinds of things. You know, there's always going to be a market for more comfortable high heels or more convenient high heels. If no one gets married for a year, there's still travel. There's still, you know, going out on date night. <laughs> there's still whatever variety of, there's still graduations. Like there's always going to be some kind of formal event market to sell high heels in. The pandemic was kind of the one, <laughs> the one thing that could come along and simultaneously wipe out every possible use case for high heels at the same time instantaneously. So that was one of the scariest periods of time for me and my entire team. And, you know, just kind of grasping that this was going to be a huge lifestyle change that really reduced the need for this product and that we had no idea how long it was going to last. And so we really had to kind of regroup, refocus our marketing strategy. And I'm happy to say, obviously, we're, you know, we're still here and we actually did manage to grow throughout the pandemic because of the some of the marketing initiatives we came up with. Um, but again, it's, it's that, that resiliency of sitting down and going, okay, our whole market's wiped out. And instead of saying, so I should, you know, probably let this go. It's how do I fix this? Like, how do I find whatever wormhole little crack of opportunity I'm going to slide through to keep this thing going? And that's what it takes. Let's turn back to the risk question that we talked about earlier. Speaking of risk, you recently appeared on Shark Tank and you actually turned down a major offer, choosing to walk away from the deal, which was a pretty good deal. Why? Walk us through that 
thought process? Part of the thought process is I didn't consider it a very good deal. To break it down from my perspective, I really was not interested in taking a royalty and I knew that going in. You know, I was super interested in getting a deal with the Sharks. But for me as an entrepreneur, I sat down with myself beforehand and kind of thought through, all right, what are the scenarios that feel right to me? Because I knew once I got in there, it was going to be very intense and high pressure. And I was going to obviously want to walk out with a deal. That's the goal, of course. And so I had a very, you know, long personal talk with myself about what are the things that will make you walk away because the last thing you want to do, again, thinking about de-risking regret, I don't want to take something that I know isn't right for me. And, you know, I'd much rather walk away and deal with it than be in that situation. So for me, a royalty was was not of interest. I really want to be putting every dollar towards growing the business. One of the biggest obstacles to getting into the footwear space is it is capital intensive. It's very expensive to get started in footwear. And so it's truly imperative to our success that every dollar we make is going back into funding growth, not paying out a royalty. And also looking at that deal, the way it was structured, for those that haven't seen the show, I was offered a, a $500,000 investment for 5%, which actually was what I asked for. I was really proud that no one really tried to beat up my valuation. We at least seem to be simpatico on that side of things, but it was going to be paid back via a royalty of $5 a pair until a million dollars was recouped. If you kind of take the royalty component out of it and break that down, really what I was offered was a $500,000 loan at 100% interest. And then he was still going to have 5% of my company. So to me, it just wasn't the right deal. The last thing we needed at that time was a million dollar liability hanging over our head. And, you know, five bucks of every single shoe, not going back into making more shoes, which is really our ultimate goal. So, you know, it was really, really tough to analyze that in that moment. And I think everyone saw on air that it definitely weighed on me emotionally. I've been a lifetime fan of the show. I've watched The Sharks since I was 12. So it was really cool to be there and, and very tough to walk away from that dream of getting a deal. But I knew I would rather stick to my guns and do something I was proud of than take a deal I knew was wrong just for the sake of it. You launched your vision for your brand at Cal Poly while you were in college. What advantages do you think that that gave you? And what about disadvantages, if any, of launching something in college? Ooh, you know, I actually, I have no regrets about starting a business in college. I think it was pretty much all upside for me. <laughs> to be fair and to preface this, I was incredibly lucky where I was completely financially secure when I was in college. As I said, I had a very supportive family and I said, you know, I, I want to start a business. I want to chase down this idea. Can I quit my part-time job and take a, a cheaper rent than I have right now and subsidize food and all these things? And my family said yes. So I was in a position when I got started where I didn't have to take a salary out of the company and also knew I was financially secure, which was incredible for me. And I appreciate not every student has that opportunity, but that was a big part of what made it a no brainer was I was kind of sitting here going, you know, I have two years where I'm not really at risk of being in debt. If the business goes under, it's not like I'm, you know, standing there, you know, twiddling my thumbs, not sure what the next step is. Like I kind of had a two year pass to just try something and see if it worked and know that I had this security blanket that failure wasn't going to put me under personally. So for me, that was that was a huge reason to start in college. And again, I know not everyone has that opportunity. I was very lucky in that sense. But I think the other best part about starting it in college was the resources that Cal Poly gave me. I mean, just having incredible access through the CIE to you know free 3D printers for our first prototypes, 
events like Innovation Quest that really helped me flesh out a business plan, The Hatchery, which connected me to a lot of advisors, a lot of different resources, a lot of people that could help me on the journey, and also connected me to the alumni network, who is very, very eager to help Cal Poly students. I mean, it's it's really incredible how passionate the Cal Poly alumni are about giving back. You know, we were able to get our provisional patent donated to us for free by an IP attorney who is just a passionate alum and liked what we were working on. So starting it in college, for me, just meant more resources, more support, more opportunities, and the most de-risked situation possible. And so from where I was sitting, it was it was all upside to start then. Because I figured, you know, if I waited till post-grad and I was 25, 30, I'd be in a situation where I needed to be supporting myself and I'd have to, you know, have a side business while I was trying to do this. Or, you know, if it was even further down the line, I'd be weighing the odds of risking my mortgage or risking, you know, my children's school or whatever it might be. So I definitely seized the opportunity and Again, being a risk averse person, I thought if there's ever a time to do this, this is the least risky time because <laughs> if I fail, it doesn't really matter. So it was it was good to have that peace of mind. I'm sort of curious about the space of uh, San Luis Obispo itself as an incubation space for businesses. After living in both the Bay Area and Los Angeles, which are two innovation hubs that kind of define California, one on the north and one on the south, a state that is itself one of, if not the major tech hub in the country. I came to Slow, which is right in the middle of Silicon Valley on the one end and Silicon Beach on the other. I started wondering whether Slow was positioned to become a major or the major new hub, Silicon Obispo or something. On the one hand, I think of Slow as a space that provides enormous potential with a major polytechnic university creating enormous amount of innovative talent that has both access to LA and the the Bay Area, which are each about three hours away. But on the other hand, I also see how slow could be a challenging place to have a business for that exact same reason, because those who want to be in or, or could easily go to an innovative space would primarily want to be in an innovation hub. And uh, you have the opportunity to go to one major hub or, or the other. What's your thinking? I personally have really loved starting a business in San Luis Obispo, just because I, I think I have kind of a rare, <laughs> a rare opinion on this for entrepreneurs in the venture sense of I strongly value work-life balance. You know, obviously I've gone through phases in the business where work-life balance has been possible. I'm kind of going through one of them right now with the post Shark Tank hype, which is, which is great. But I think being outside of one of those big hubs is, is healthy in a lot of ways when you want to turn the grind off. When you want to turn the entrepreneurship off, you know, I don't think it's healthy to be the entrepreneur 24 seven because it is very intense and there is a lot of risk and a lot of ups and downs. And San Luis Obispo for me has provided a great opportunity where, you know, if we are dealing with something tough or I just need to kind of recenter myself and get my head right as a leader, being able to be in such a beautiful place that does have a, a different pace of life to it, that I think is a little more calming than say the Silicon Valley, you know, just being able to go to Avila for the day and just kind of regroup, I think is actually really healthy and has been really beneficial to my mental health and mental state as I've gone through this, which I've definitely come to appreciate over the last four years, a big part of my job really as the leader of this company is my mental health. You know, I think a lot of people forget that, but if the leader is crumbling on the inside, it's not going to mean good things for the institution. So 
it's been very good for me in that sense. And then I also think, you know, to your point about acquiring talent, one of my initial only concerns about doing this in San Luis Obispo was talent acquisition of most of the, you know, entrepreneurially minded people are kind of split up across the state. But in a weird way, that's something the pandemic has really helped with. I think the acceptance of working remote has really flipped that dynamic for us of, you know, throughout this time, I actually hired a COO in Los Angeles. I hired a marketing person in Washington. I'm currently interviewing for a new position and we've got applicants in Texas, LA and Silicon Valley. And now that we're so normalized with the remote workspace, there's no issue with hiring those people. And so it's kind of transitioned our whole wave of thought where I, as a founder, can still be here in San Luis Obispo and support that balance for myself to keep myself healthy. But it's not limiting me from getting those those grinders that we need into the company. So it's it's kind of been an interesting opportunity for us. Yeah, I want to talk about that kind of collection of talent, especially talent in different arenas with different backgrounds and different skills that come together in making the kind of product that you make. Um, You have a business background. Of course, you also need uh, imaging, imagining, design, building a brand, collecting physical resources, testing durability, biometrics, um, coding a website. All of these are require kind of different specialties or different kinds of intellectual backgrounds to come together. Can you talk about your experience working with so many different backgrounds and who who do you need at that space? What kind of backgrounds do they need to have? And what is it like to work with people who have so many different kind of intellectual trajectories and disciplinary differences? Oh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, everyone brings, you know, a different perspective to the table. To that point, it's been it's been really interesting to have such a diverse set of backgrounds. You know, I think particularly in our space, we have very fashion design minded people on the footwear side. We do have engineers, which is rare for the fashion space. It's it's not often a footwear designer is engaging with <laughs> with an engine mechanical engineer on a daily basis. Um, so we have that kind of mindset. We obviously have the business side of shipping, logistics. To your point, the website, you know, code. We've we've got all these different disciplines, and it's really fun to get to see how they all fit together. And that's one of my favorite parts, actually, of my job as CEO is figuring out how do you mesh all of those disciplines to create a cohesive unit that's capable of scale, and then finding the right people for all of those positions. Um, and it's it's been really cool to build up the team. As I said, we have people all over California, all over the West Coast. Our web team is actually in New York. That just reminded me of that. All different ages, all different backgrounds. And everyone brings such a unique perspective. And I think it makes us stronger as a team. It's really fun when we're having these roundtables. And, you know, my COO is saying, hey, we have to ship the product XYZ way so that the shipping cost is the cheapest. And then I've got the web team kicking in going, no, you need to ship it this way because that's going to be the best brand experience to the customer. And so it's, it's, I think, actually makes us a lot stronger to have all those different mindsets weighing in. It just helps us troubleshoot and create the best possible experience from every angle, which, of course, is the goal. One reason I was excited to do this interview on the Technically Human podcast is because I think that your work and your your business expands the idea of what we typically understand technology to be. So why is footwear a technological problem? I mean, I think to your point, 
the the term technology has gotten a little too one-sided with the tech boom. Everyone thinks of technology as, you know, an iPhone or something digital. I see technology and, and invention and innovation as just the way things work structurally. You know, they always, I forget who said the quote, but the original technology was the wheel, right? Like it's just the way that things are put together. And so footwear is technology, in the, or at least ours is technology in the sense that it's a new way of doing things. Our running joke is actually that we reinvented the heel versus the wheel in that sense. But no, I think it's technology, obviously, in the way that we look at it. And I think footwear is a technology in the sense that it's the foundation that we walk upon every day. Like that always gets overlooked, but you know, pretty much regardless of what outfit you're wearing, maybe you're wearing a hat, maybe you're wearing a jacket, maybe you're wearing pants or a skirt or whatever it may be. You're pretty much always wearing shoes <laughs> like by and large and shoes are what get you from A to B. And that's, I think that's a technology in itself as it really is, you know, very cliche, but the foundation that we, that we walk on to carry us through our days. I like to remind people that the word technology actually comes from the Greek tech Techne means art or craft. It's the same root word for textile or for or for text, right? So there really is a kind of like basic etymological link at at the very core of the term itself. And I think it's so interesting that you know you talked before you you hire uh, engineers to work on your footwear because you're actually kind of re-engineering the design. And I I think about that term a lot too. We tend to associate it with the physical production of things. But of course, engineering is all about how you design things well. So there's this real connection and there too. You know, I, I think that engineers who are in the process of getting that degree themselves have sometimes a limited understanding of what that degree will do in terms of taking them places. Can you give us a sense of how you hired your engineers and what it looked like for them to come to your company? This story is going to go in probably a direction you don't expect. So as I mentioned, I, I started this business in, in college, and I have to say finding my first engineer was more or less fate. And he's actually still with me today. He was my, my first hire, um, and now he's our, he was our third full-time employee officially, uh, I want to say a year and a half ago. He formally came on in that capacity. But really, it, it, there's no great recruiting story here. It was it's, I was in line at the Campus UU Starbucks with my co-founder at the time when I originally started the business, I had a, a co-founder with an industrial tech background. And she and I were getting ready to join the Hot House Summer Accelerator Program that Cal Poly puts on. And in our application process of getting ready for the Hot House, one of the main bits of feedback we got from the you know acceptance committee was you guys really need a mechanical engineer this summer. If you're going to do this, you know, you're going to develop a prototype, you need a mechanical engineer that can come out and make sure this thing works and is, you know, possible to be produced on a manufacturing line, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, we were given this feedback about four weeks before the accelerator was going to start. And as you know, Cal Poly has a really hot engineering program. And so almost every engineer we knew already had an internship commitment and not just an internship commitment, but a paid internship commitment and a well-paid <laughs> internship commitment because of the quality of talent coming out of Cal Poly. And so she and I were just in that UU Starbucks line kind of complaining about, you know, how are we going to solve this problem? We need to find a mechanical engineer in four weeks who doesn't already have an internship commitment and wants to design high heels. The other big issue we saw is typically the mechanical engineering department is mostly men. We thought who is going to want to spend the whole summer working for free designing high heels? <laughs> like I just don't see that happening. 
And I kid you not, I got a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and the guy behind me in line just said, hi, you know, my name is Sagey. I'm a mechanical engineer. I don't have an internship this summer and I actually love designing shoes. I've done it for years on the side. It's my hobby. And I just overheard your conversation and think this would be great. <laughs> and that, that was literally the entire way that we hired our first engineer was we just kind of said, wow, all right, bring us, uh, bring us some shoe sketches tomorrow. Here's my number. And sure enough, he showed up with a whole notebook full of high heels. And we were just baffled that this had happened. It was very much a kind of kismet experience. And he joined us for that whole summer and, and beyond. As I said, he's, he's full time with us now and still engineering and designing our shoes to this day. So it, it all worked out. But there was not a lot of strategy that went into that. I have to say, it just kind of worked out. You know, it's so interesting. Um, I talked to so many entrepreneurs where the kind of pivot moment was a real coincidence, standing in line somewhere, talking to somebody that they had met fortuitously, uh, running into a venture capitalist at a coffee house or at a networking event or something like that. And I think about that, especially right now in the era of COVID, where Almost every single interaction we have with somebody is predetermined or kind of engineered through an algorithm or um, some sort of set point date. Do you think that this is changing the kind of direction of entrepreneurship? I definitely think so. I mean, I'm hopeful that, you know, the time is quickly approaching where we will be back out again and networking with people, but there's no denying, you know, some of those kismet opportunities and a lot of those networking opportunities for sure have been greatly minimized by the pandemic. And it's a struggle, you know, to your point, I've always joked, I think the Starbucks line is magical. I obviously had that experience. I've actually met and closed two investments in the Starbucks line before, like just being out in public, you never know who you're going to meet. I'm always surprised how small this world is. And, you know, sometimes you're just walking down the street and you never know who you're going to bump into. And I think there's real opportunity in that. You know, they always say, I think it's luck. The definition of luck is preparation meets opportunity. And so that was something that always got me really excited is, hey, I know I'm prepared. Now I just need the opportunity to hit me in the face. And when you're out and about, I think that is a lot easier. So I, I do think the pandemic has kind of changed our capacity to experience luck, quote unquote. And I'm very much looking forward to, to that component getting back to normal. It, it does make it a lot harder. I want to turn to ethics now. I asked you about why footwear is a technical issue. Now I want to ask about uh, the ethics portion this is a big picture question. We've talked about the tech. So why is footwear an ethical issue? There's some big ethical questions around footwear that we're trying to take a stand on ourselves. One of the main ones is around sustainability. Footwear production is inherently not super environmentally friendly. And we know that our, you know, we're consciously trying to find ways to make it better, but a lot of the technology just doesn't exist at this point, or at least not in an affordable place yet. But something that I think has been a huge ethical issue in the industry is a lot of footwear brands are so caught up on brand clout and wanting every product to be perfect, which I appreciate that side of it. But they actually, uh, there's an industry common practice where if your shoes come back from an exchange or a return slightly worn, or if you get something from your supplier that has a loose stitch or is slightly the wrong color, you know, minor, minor defects on an otherwise functional product they burn them. And that, you know, creates more environmental harm in and of itself, on top of the fact that you're burning a good that already was not sustainably made in the first place. So it's really just compounding the issue. So 
a stance that we've already taken very strongly is we do not destroy slightly damaged product. We repurpose them either via donation or, you know, selling them for a super discount so that we can tap a market that maybe can't afford our current price point. We come up with a bunch of creative ways, but we're very much committed to not destroying goods. Um, I just don't believe in that. You know, so I, especially I think part of it is being a college founder. I think back on, you know, when I heard some of these big brands do that, I thought, wait, they're burning a Louboutin that has a loose stitch. Like I would have bought that at 50% off. I don't care if it has a loose stitch. Like that's so cool that I get to own one. It doesn't bother me. I mean, these are truly minor defects that this is happening over. So I think for me, having that mindset, I thought there's a market for this. Like it doesn't need to be burned. I don't think it devalues the brand. If anything, I think it provides access to a different market that is just going to be excited to experience the technology at a more affordable price point. And hopefully they'll you know, come back and be a lifetime customer. So ethically, that's one stance we've already taken is just avoiding the destruction of goods at all costs. Um, but we're continuously looking to our supply chain and the most recent technologies and innovation to try to find ways to to be more sustainable. When you were talking earlier, what came up for me was the number of places I don't go because I think that if I walk there, my feet will hurt in the shoes that I'm in. I think about the fact that when I'm on campus and I'm walking around Cal Poly, you know, I think to myself when I'm on campus and I usually get dressed up and I wear heels, um, do I really want to go to that event across campus? Because I'm going to have to walk there and I am going to end up hurting my feet and I only have, you know, so much that I can walk in this given day. I think about the spaces that I don't enter into because I have that calculation in my mind all the time. I think about the things I miss out on. Um, I, I think that this trajectory of things I could have done but did not do because my feet hurt um, translates into major equity issues if I play it out on the large scale field. Do you think that this is, in a sense, an equity issue that presents an ethical problem for women? Um, I, I don't know. You know, I would assume that I'm not alone in this as a, a female who wears high heels. What's your take? You definitely aren't alone in that. And, you know, it's actually funny. The situation you described, we've realized, has become our core mission and our value statement as a company is solving exactly that equity issue. By the way, it sounds like you really need a pair of our shoes not to plug them, but that's that's kind of exactly what we've made them for. So, no, I, I definitely think that's true. I think a lot about, you know, a big inspiration point for me was growing up watching my mom in the closet troubleshoot her whole day at 8 a.m. It's okay, I want to wear these heels, but I have to park 200 yards away from where I'm going to dinner. And then I know I have to walk from that meeting to that meeting and X, Y, Z. And she's literally having to map out everything that comes her way while she's picking her shoes. And of course, the fundamental flaw there is then you can't account for the unexpected and the opportunities that are going to hit you in the face. And going back to, you know, luck, preparation meets opportunity. A degree of that preparation is being in the right attire to take advantage of the situation. And if you're in, to your point, you know, painful heels and you hear of this great lecture you want to see 200 yards across campus and you're thinking, oh, gosh, I can't walk over there. That's a missed opportunity that is rooted in the high heel pain that you're experiencing. And so, again, going back, at, I definitely think there, there is an equity issue. High heels have been a symbol of oppression for a long time. There's no secret in that. And we really see our design as, as taking that back. 
and saying, look, you can still have style and the look that you want without sacrificing comfort and without sacrificing what you want to do in the day. Our core mission really is to empower women to do it all. Like that's that's the phrase that we have is you should be able to leave your house at 9 a.m. and know that if you're not back home or able to get a different pair of shoes until 9 p.m., you'll be fine. Like you can go to work, you can give the meeting, you can pick up your kid from school, you can grab the casual happy hour with your friend last minute, you can you can run to a concert, you don't you shouldn't have to turn down opportunities as they present themselves, because you picked out a certain shoe earlier in the day, like as as silly as that is to think that shoes have that much of an impact to your point, they definitely do. And so we really see our tech as a great equalizer in that it takes that risk off the table. Like if an opportunity comes up, just ditch your heel and carry on your way. So we really see, um, like I said, it's, it's always kind of funny to say that a shoe can be empowering, but we truly think this tech, it is empowering. It's, it's taking the high heel back and taking back control of your day and the opportunities you can follow. What do you say to critics? And I, I've heard them come in two different forms, and maybe there are more forms of criticism. Um, but critics who say, on the one hand, I hear this from from oftentimes people who have not worn high heels, um, typically men, uh, that why don't you just wear flats all the time? Why wear high heels at all? And then from a feminist critique that high heels are a form of oppression and that you should specifically not wear high heels, not only because they are painful, but because they are limiting for women completely. What do you say to those kinds of critics? You know, to the first feedback of why don't you just wear flats, to your point, it almost always comes from men. <laughs> and that's one of the questions I spend 10 minutes explaining in my venture capital pitches. Um, you know, I've, I've looked a lot into it. And psychologically, they've proven that high heels make women feel more confident. They make you feel stronger, at least until the moment your feet start hurting, right? Then it kind of changes the whole situation. But there's just something to a good pair of heels that I do think really ties up an outfit. And there's also a fashion component. I mean, to some people, that's not important and that's completely fine. But we've definitely received messaging over the last 200 years that high heels are an essential component of fashion and an essential component of formal or professional wear. It's all kind of a psychological thing. I can't really explain it. But I know for me, if I'm going to a wedding, I'm wearing heels. If I'm not, it feels wrong to me. Like that just is part of my style and part of how I view how how I want my aesthetic to be when I'm at those events. And I don't think I should have to sacrifice comfort to look the way I want to look. And so long and short, I think the rebuttal in general is it's just kind of a psychological thing. And also women shouldn't have to explain why they want to wear high heels. It should just be like, I th if I want to wear them to a wedding, that's my choice and I want to do it. I don't have to. Why don't you just wear flats? Because I don't want to. <laughs> so like, that's why. Um, and then, you know, for the for the the more feminist component of their symbol of oppression and all these other things, I totally hear that. And again, I really see what we're doing here as reclaiming high heels and changing that definition of what they mean. I actually would say I don't view our shoe as a high heel in that traditional sense. I do agree traditional high heel design is bucketed into this kind of this group that's a design component rooted in oppression. Convertible high heels are a whole new category. It's not just a heel. It's not just a flat. It's its own separate thing that doesn't have that same history. 
And as I said, I believe it's it actually has the converse effect of it's empowering. I think what our technology is saying, you don't have to explain why you want to wear heels, right? Like you can ditch them if you want, or you can have them on if you do. Do whatever you want, wear whatever you want, and feel good in that moment by whatever the definition of feeling good is for you. If it's being in heels and feeling confident, great. If it's being in a flat and being more comfortable, awesome. You get to pick what feeling and looking good means and then live it in that moment and not have to stress about it. I love that your innovation is really designing empathically and imaginatively and humanistically for a group of people who use your product. You can design well because you've already walked, so to speak, miles in other designers' shoes and shoes that did not fit well. So I kind of wanted to ask a question that gets at the fact that it's really important to include the, the perspective of the people using the products. How are you thinking about kind of building in a diversity of perspectives from the women who use your product. I think the best way to talk through this is I actually just did a project in January where I called our top six highest grossing customers and had hour, hour and a half long sit downs, virtual, obviously, but virtual sit downs with each of them and asked, how is this changing your life? And how could it be better? And what about the product is working for you versus what isn't? And taking that feedback really seriously. You know, for me as a founder, I read every review that comes in. I read all of the inbound customer service requests because it's important to me that we are creating a product that actually is empowering women and is solving this problem and solving it well in a way that works for women of all ages, demographics, backgrounds across the globe, hopefully, eventually. So I really pay attention to that feedback and I take it to heart and I'm committed to making a product that works for every single one of our customers in the right way for her. And I think something that's really cool actually that our product brings to the table is that unique customization component. Like when I say making a product that works for every woman, you know, you think about a traditional high heel, it is what it is in that moment. It works for some women, it might not for others. Our shoe, because of the way it's designed, can be switched between a four inch heel, a three inch heel, a block or a stiletto. And, you know, men might not understand, unfortunately, but women understand, depending on your personal style preference and also who you are as a woman, you might like one over the other. Like we've talked a lot and there's someone where they only wear closed toed shoes because of, you know, they don't like the way their toes look, whatever it is, or they only wear blocks because they want that extra stability. They only like a three inch because they have tight hamstrings and don't want a taller heel. You know, who knows what it is. But I think something really cool about our product is it it inherently has this custom component where it can be optimized for each individual customer. It allows them to pick their preference and not be just limited strictly by, you know, the offering is what it is, have at it. There's a whole mix and match component where it can get very individualized. And I think that that's a, a cool thing that we've brought into it as well. And that's directly from, you know, customer feedback. When we initially launched with four inch stilettos, we heard, hey, I'm a block customer. I need a block. I just don't like stilettos. They're not stable enough for me. I want more support. Or, hey, I really need a three inch, four inch is too much for my legs at this point in my life. Like I just need something else. And being able to push out those extensions so that they can customize the shoes they already owned was really, really cool. Being able to just incrementally improve the product without having to replace it entirely. I always like to end the interviews with a question that 
is oriented toward thinking about the next generation of technologists and humanists. So what do you think that next generation of technologists and humanists who are innovating right now need to know about what it means to design em empathically? How can we become more empathic, more thoughtful, more humanistic innovators? You know, again, it seems like an obvious answer, but talk to your customer, listen, and really care about what they have to say. You know, for me, again, when we launched, we only had four inch stilettos. Why? Because that's what I wore. And then we got out of there on the market and there was all this feedback. And at first I was very hesitant to even make a lower heel, but I started listening to the stories and hearing why people wanted that and thought, hey, at the end of the day, you know, let's regroup on the core and the mission. Our mission is to create shoes that empower women in their daily lives. If the feedback is that this style or this heel or this whatever isn't doing that for them, then we need to make what does. Like that's what we stand for and that's what we need to be investing in. And so again, it seems like a really obvious thing, but the most important thing that goes into empathic design is having those conversations and being open to them with the customers that you're serving and empathizing with those problems and creating the solution that they need to see. That's how you continue moving down your mission and continue to build a brand and a company and a product that people are going to passionately support is when they know their feedback is heard and that it's acted upon. When I think back on you know how we started the conversation on how high heels were traditionally designed by men, you think about empathetic leadership, right? They heard that the shoes were painful, but since they didn't experience it themselves, no change was seen. So I think to highlight that even further, that's the that's why traditional high heels were failing, is they were refusing to empathetically connect with the customer. It was, oh, I don't experience that, so I don't care enough to fix it. Just because I don't experience a problem doesn't mean it's not a problem that deserves to be fixed, especially when your real goal is empowering women at large. That means you have to take all women's feedback seriously. Thank you, Haley. Of course. And that's it for season four of the Technical Human Podcast. We'll see you in a few weeks to share another round of exciting conversations about tech, ethics, and how we can build a better vision of technology, one aligned with our human values.